You are listening to On the Daily, the Rotoviz Daily Fantasy Sports Podcast, powered by Rotoviz Radio. Hey everyone, I'm Matt Freeman, Matt F. Oracle of the Action Network and Rotoviz. Welcome to the September 28th, 2018 NASCAR edition of On the Daily. I'm joined by Dr. Nick Giffen, an owner of Rotoviz, a PhD in mathematics, a three time qualifier for the DraftKings NASCAR main event, and one of the best NASCAR DFS players in the world. You can follow him on Twitter at Rotodoc. Nick, how's it going? Hey, Matt. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm doing great. Um, I think, uh, yeah, it's been an interesting NASCAR playoffs so far, and we're, we're definitely going to talk about the playoffs. We're going to talk about this weekend's race. There's so much to talk about. I, I have a feeling we might run a little long on this pod, but a lot of good information about to come to you guys this weekend. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to this weekend's race. We'll get into it, like I said, but uh, this is this is going to be something completely and totally different. Yeah, so a race at the Charlotte Motor Speedway, but not really the Charlotte Motor Speedway because uh, it is on the Roval, which uh, is a fun word to say, by the way. Um, and also it's an elimination round. Uh, four drivers will fall out of the playoffs after this round. So uh, anyway, a lot to talk about. Um, but first, let's recap last weekend's race at Richmond Raceway. Kyle Busch had to start at the rear of the field after repairing damage after qualifying. Uh, he came all the way through to sweep the two Richmond races this year and lock himself into the playoffs. Nick, talk about the Richmond race. Yeah, so Richmond, of course, is a, it's a high predictable track. Um, you know, the R squared is pretty high on the model. It was last week and a very low DNF rate. So I said we wanted to play Richmond pretty chalky, and uh, as it turns out, Richmond was was pretty chalky. There were very few incidents. Uh, I don't think there were any incidents until the final segment. Uh, and yeah, it was just uh, another low DNF rate. Um, pretty chalky. You know, Martin Truex Jr. led a good chunk of the race. Kyle Busch led at the end there, uh, and he, he came from the back, even though technically he didn't start in the back for DraftKings purposes, but he still came from the back, won the race. And it's funny because the first Richmond race, he also came from the back, but he actually started in the back that time per DraftKings. But, uh, yeah, so Kyle Busch moves through, and uh, Richmond kind of played out like we expect with Richmond, a, a high predictable uh, race. And, um, yeah, it was, it was definitely what I expected from Richmond. I will say the one thing that maybe was a little unexpected was Kevin Harvick started on the pole. Thought he'd be the number one dominator, but I really liked Truex as well. Harvick dominated a little bit at the beginning. He led about 40 laps, but then he didn't lead again. Uh, Truex was the main dominator. And uh, we had a couple other different leaders throughout the race, but overall pretty much as predicted. Uh, so, you know, when we talk about, we've talked about this several times this year, go with the predictability of the model. High predictable race, be a little more chalky. Lower predictability race, be a little more different. Go away from the model a little bit more. Doesn't mean ignore it, obviously. Um, but uh, it definitely means there's more opportunities to differentiate. So uh, as always, try to play to the history of the track, the history of, of the race and the model, and uh, you'll, you, you know, long-term you'll have success in NASCAR DFS. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong. The race was on Saturday last week, right? Exactly, yeah. Okay. So uh, we didn't record a podcast last week. Uh, I was busy doing NFL stuff. And, uh, so, you know, Sunday comes around and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to play some props, some NASCAR props. And then I look and I'm like, oh damn it. The race was yesterday. So I, I totally missed props on NASCAR for like the first time in months. Uh, and I felt like empty and devastated. Did you, yeah. did you play props last week? Uh, I, I did not play any props either. Um, I basically shut it down on, uh, 
you know, Friday or Saturday, whatever it was, uh, that that day after I did uh, uh, Road of His Live, because I did Road of His Live Saturday morning yeah. um, because of the, the wonky schedule. So yeah. I was kind of just fried after, after Road of His Live, and uh, there wasn't a whole ton of time before the race after that. So I shut it down on the props this weekend. Um, I think this was the third time I didn't play props this year, and it was all on Saturday night races, I believe. Yeah, and, and so I was just – you talking about the model and how predictable it was just really makes me hate myself for not getting in on the prop market last week. Because I, I feel like that yeah. would have been, been a good time to do it. Yeah, especially on a highly predictable race. And we had – it was a couple of weeks ago we had a, a pretty predictable race, and I was like Aaron, Eric Jones slam dunk over Blaney oh, yeah. on a predictable track. And yeah, I, yeah I was – it was it was great, and uh, I wish I had too. But um, I, my brother was in town as well, so oh, that's right, that's uh, just, right. Yeah, yeah, just super busy, and and my brain was fried. And I played some poker. I, you know, my brother actually came into town to play a poker series, and uh, so I played a couple tournaments with him. That was a lot of fun. But nice. uh, yeah, I was just totally fried, and and I always I always screw up Saturday races as well. All right, so let's talk about. Um this race Kyle Busch and the Vegas race winner Brad Keselowski they're locked into the next round um talk about the the playoff field what that looks like uh the DFS implications um for the Roval based on the uh, current playoff standings for the drivers yeah so um basically uh four drivers are essentially locked into the next round you mentioned Kyle Busch of course and Brad Keselowski who won the first two playoff races Martin Truex Jr. is uh, is also in just based off of points, so um, he's in no danger uh, of of missing out. He's guaranteed to go through the next round on points. Kevin Harvick is fourth in the standings, and he's 57 points up on the cut line. To not make it, he'd have to finish, uh, I think, dead last and have uh, like Clint Boyer, um, you know somebody from outside really far outside win the race. And then I think also like Clint Boyer would need to win both stages and finish second or something. He's, he's Kevin Harvick's locked in. Um, there's no crazy scenario where he won't make it essentially. Uh, and I think as long as he starts the race, he might even be guaranteed because he's guaranteed to pick up at least four points. So yeah, Kevin Harvick is actually locked in. Uh, so the big four essentially this year are, are Harvick, Truex, Kyle Busch are the big three, and then Brad Keselowski's won three races recently, so you can kind of call them the big four now, but really it's the big three and Keselowski. They're locked in. After that, the playoff standings do get jumbled a little bit. Joey Logano is, this is crazy, he's 32 points behind Kevin Harvick, but he's still 25 points ahead of the bubble right now, which of course 12 drivers make it. So Joey Logano's fifth in the standings, 25 up on the bubble. Eric Almirola is 6, 23 up on the bubble. Kyle Larson is 17 up on the bubble in 7th. Kurt Busch, 15 up on the bubble in 8th. Then uh, 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th, they're all within 10 points of the bubble. you got Chase Elliott and Austin Dillon tied at 10 points up. Alex Bowman, 5 points up. And Ryan Blaney, 4 points up on the good side there. On the bad side, so 13 through 16, Clint Boyer is the driver currently on the outside looking in on the, the, the exact bubble in 13th, minus four to Ryan Blaney. Uh, Jimmy Johnson is minus six to Ryan Blaney in 14th. Eric Jones is minus 21 in 15th. Remember, he had that accident at Las Vegas where Kevin Harvick was also involved. Uh, Harvick blew a tire and nowhere for Jones to go. So he's minus 21 in 15th. Denny Hamlin, minus 29 in 16th. Not so good there for him. What you're thinking is it's 
almost surely that Denny Hamlin needs to win and very probable that Eric Jones needs to win as well. It's not uh, guaranteed that either of these drivers are eliminated without winning, but they definitely would have to top five and and hope for and, and pick up some stage points most likely and hope for struggles from a couple of the drivers just on the inside of the bubble, Ryan Blaney and Alex Bowman type drivers there who are four or five points to the good, uh, maybe even a, a you know, Austin Dillon or Chase Elliott, but it's very, very unlikely for these drivers to come in because not only does that have to happen, but then they also have to leapfrog Clint Boyer and Jimmy Johnson, who are, you know, if, if you expect Blaney or Bowman has a problem, the next most likely drivers to take over in front of them would be Boyer and Jimmy Johnson. So Hamlin and Jones also have to pass those other drivers as well uh, in the point standing. So they're mostly looking at win and in. So what does that do for playoffs? You definitely think somebody like Denny Hamlin will uh, will roll the dice and, and take some, some strategic gambles, especially because he's won at road course races before. Uh, and he starts 27th this weekend. So he's pretty far back there. He's definitely going to be a driver that I think wants to shake it up, do things different from the leaders, try to get off strategy and uh, get out front to give him the best chance of making it through. Uh, Eric Jones, on the other hand, uh, he starts 12th. So he's kind of in an awkward spot where he's not so far back that being different from the leaders is good. Um, but, uh, you know, if he can pass some drivers, he'll work his way towards the front. And then it's probably a good thing to kind of do what the leaders are doing. Or maybe not. I, I don't know. So these guys are in, in situations where they have the opportunity to make some strategic decisions because all they care about is, for the most part, is a race win. Unless, you know chaos just starts happening which we'll talk about i think is possible and and several drivers in front of them get eliminated then you'll see them switch switch into conservation mode essentially and just try to point their way in so there are multiple ways this could play out for those drivers i think everybody else aside from those two are not really gambling they're going to try to do the safe strategies um stay on strategy as much as possible um try to make the the strategy that gives them the highest probability of not finishing really far back uh, so I think you're going to see a lot of safer calls among pretty much everybody else, other than, of course, the big four that we talked about who are all locked in. Um, these guys are just racing for for the win and playoff points. So you're going to see these guys, I think, uh, go for playoff points. And what does that do for DFS? I actually think it makes it a little less likely that somebody like Kevin Harvick or Martin Truex Jr. or Kyle Busch or Brad Keselowski uh, wins the race because we'll talk about it in the, in the strategic section of, of, of the pod here, but... Because of the way the stages will play out with, uh, um, you know, just only 109 laps and 400 kilometers of racing, the way the stages will play out, these guys are going to want stage points. But the smartest thing to do is not to stay out at the end of the stage. And these guys are going to do the not smartest thing. I think that'll actually set them up as less likely to win. Kevin Harvick, Kyle Busch, Martin Truex Jr. and or Brad Keselowski. So they become kind of interesting fades in a way, uh, depending on who you think will, will win different stages and how you know, who's who we think will be furthest forward. So um, a lot of that will depend on maybe practice. Obviously, we have had qualifying, so starting positions are out. And none of these four drivers are actually starting very high. You've got Truex starting 13th. Uh, Kyle Busch 14th, Harvick 19th, and Brad Keselowski 25th. So um, maybe it doesn't matter as much as it would have if one of these drivers was starting a lot further forward. But uh, I still think, you know, they'll work one or one or the other of these drivers will work their way forward, kind of get the hang of this track, and uh, maybe try to pick up a stage two win or something like that to get that extra playoff point, uh, which could cost them a race win. I'm not so sure. Um, obviously a race wins important because it gets you five playoff points. So it's gonna be hard to win the race anyway. So we'll have to see, but I think as far as DFS strategy goes, Jones and Hamlin are interesting gambles. Um, 
then, uh, you know, in terms of like uh, high variance gambles, they could finish really far back. They could finish really high up. Uh, they could finish pretty much anywhere. Uh, and then the rest of the guys, I think, are kind of points racing up until, you know, the, like I said, the big four um, are kind of interesting fades, I would guess, in terms of the race win. Now, that doesn't mean they're bad DFS plays in general because they're all starting in those teens or even further back range. So, um, yeah, it, it doesn't seem to affect these big four, I think, in this elimination race as it might if they were starting further forward. So uh, kind of the, the long-winded rundown of the playoff standings. So um, while you were talking, I was going on different online sports books, trying to see if any of them had odds on uh, like play on drivers making it through to the next round of the playoffs. But I haven't seen anything like that, which is kind of disappointing. Actually, yeah, I, we might get something after final practice, uh, yeah, you know, and, and the and the Xfinity race. Um, but uh, that's usually when most of the sites post something. But yeah, I think it would have been cool earlier in the week to. Um, I could, I could even check a couple of the different apps out there, but, uh, for the local sports books, but, um, yeah, it'd be interesting. I think that would be cool. But I think right now, because we've had qualifying, um, if there were any lines, they'd be off the board anyway until, uh, until after practice tomorrow. All right. So something to, uh, to keep an eye on, um, because I will definitely, uh, be degenerate in hitting those with very small amounts of money. Um, (laughs) Okay. Um, before, uh, getting to, uh, Charlotte Roval DFS talk, um, let's quickly mention the NASCAR silly season, which is, uh, in full on mode right now. Two drivers were announced just today that they will be making the jump to full-time rides in the cup series next year. Uh, can you talk about that and any driver changes, um, that we should be aware of? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it is full on silly season. Uh, that's what they call it in, in motorsports. For those of you who are not uh, old school auto racing fans, even if it's IndyCar or anything like that, we call it silly season. Uh, but AJ Allmendinger is going to be out of his ride at the end of this year. Uh, he is no longer going to be a JTG Doherty racing. We haven't heard where he's going to go. Replacing him will be Ryan Priest, And Ryan Priest raced a part-time Xfinity schedule this year. Um, he opted not to run a full-time Xfinity schedule with a lesser team, but a part-time schedule uh, with with better team and that actually worked for him because uh, he's done very well and he parlayed that into a full time cup ride replacing AJ Allmendinger in that number 47 car at JTG Doherty. Also, Ryan Newman leaves Richard Childress Racing. He was in the the 31 car as you know at RCR. He's going to be leaving RCR, going to Roush Fenway Racing and re- replacing the the split ride between Trevor Bain and Matt Kenseth. So Ryan Newman will be at uh, Roush Fenway Racing, teaming up with with Ricky Stenhouse Jr. there. And replacing Ryan Newman in the 31 is is the other driver. Uh, you said there were two Xfinity drivers coming up, and that is Daniel Hemrick, who is going to replace Ryan Newman at RCR full-time in 2019. He'll be taking that 31 ride over. There was some speculation that maybe Richard Childress would put his other grandkid, uh, Ty Dillon, into that 31 ride. But Ty Dillon, they've, they, earlier in the year, they said – they talked about how Ty Dillon was happy at the 13 team at Jermaine, which is an affiliate of RCR. Uh, and uh, so he was going to continue in that role. And this news definitely just confirms that. So Daniel Hemrick will be full time in the 31 car next year. Uh, a lot of things obviously have been going on. We talked about the news that Martin Truex Jr.'s team will be folding at the end of this year. So he's going to be almost surely going over to I mean, it's all but a done deal that he's going over to Gibbs next year, replacing Daniel Suarez. 
Uh, and then it's all but you know done that uh, Daniel Soros will be looking for a ride. Uh, Kurt Busch still looking for a ride. Jamie McMurray is out of that one ride next year. We don't know who will be replacing him there yet. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of – a lot of silly season going on for uh, 2019, and there's still more news to come. Okay, let's uh, let's talk about the Roval, which is again just a really fun word to say. A 400 kilometer race, is that right? Kilometer, not miles, but kilometer. Correct. That's it's the Charlotte Roval 400 or whatever, but uh, it is it is kilometers. Kilometers. Okay. Uh, weirder and weirder. Okay, so it's 109 laps. Uh, each of the first two stages will be 25 laps long. The final stage is 59 laps. Um, with this being the first Roval race in NASCAR DFS history, uh, do you have any expectations at all for how this might play out? Um, no, I, I think we can. All we can kind of go by is on what we've been hearing uh, from the drivers and and seeing with our eyes and in first practice and and in the uh, the test sessions, but. You know, what I think will happen is kind of along the lines of what Clint Boyer said earlier uh, this weekend. Clint Boyer thinks it's going to be wild at times, but he also thinks there will be calm periods as drivers kind of figure it out and maneuver through different strategies and, and so forth. But uh, in short, I have no idea. If anybody knows what's going to happen, they're lying because they don't. Uh, do we know what past races this will be like? No. Will this be like Watkins Glen? Will this be like Sonoma? Will this be like uh any of that other stuff i have no idea uh you know we've got things like stage strategy so you know they mentioned the stages are 25 laps long the first two stages well that the fuel mileage on uh, is such that you know it's like a 33 to 35 lap fuel window so they can run the whole first and then the whole second stage without pitting but you will want to pit under the stage caution if not before the stage caution uh, obviously, because you will need to refuel before the end of the second stage. And then, uh, you know, if you pit at the end of the first stage, you're going to need to pit at the end of the second stage because you'll have to pit at some point at the end of the, you know, in the middle of the second stage. Maybe you don't have to pit at the end of the second stage. Uh, it, it'll be cutting it close because, you're, you know, you're talking 25 laps to lap 50. And then you can go 33, probably a few extra with the cautions. You could go maybe 35 and we get a lot of caution, 40 laps. Uh, if you pit at the end of stage one, so you could go 40 laps and that'll take you, uh, to lap, let's see, 25 to 40, 65. So if I'm doing my math right here, 109 minus 65 is 44. You probably can't quite stretch it to the end there, but, but let's say we get a lot of caution. You could, you could possibly stretch it. So there are some different fuel strategies we could see. And that's what I was talking about with these leaders, uh, Kevin Harvick, Kyle Busch, Martin Truex Jr., Brad Kozlowski looking for stage points. The smart thing to do is pit at lap 23 before pits close, so you can pit under green and not lose a lap, uh, and then come out still on the you know on the lead lap, and then uh, then the caution comes, everybody bunches together, and anybody who hasn't pitted then pits and goes to the end of the the field. Well, I think you're going to see maybe somebody like Carl, uh, Kyle Busch or Martin Truex Jr. and or Kevin Harvick and or Brad Keselowski stay out and try to pick up that stage win, then pit under the caution and kind of go towards the rear of the field. And, and you'll see other drivers do that as well, just trying to get on different strategies from the leaders and so forth. But uh, that's where I think, you know, they might be on the non-optimal strategy. But with what we expect to be possibly a lot of cautions, um, you know, any number of different strategies could play out. But uh, yeah, we're I think the reason we're expecting a lot more cautions because the Roval is very different from Sonoma and very different from Watkins Glen. Uh, 
Sonoma, Watkins Glen are road courses. They're built on natural terrain. Um, they're, so they're not city street courses like you see in IndyCar and some of this, you know, like this, they run on the streets of Long Beach or whatever, but uh, they're on natural terrain road courses. So they're designed with runoff areas in mind. The Roval doesn't have any room for runoff. It's, it's part oval. And then the road course part of it is on the infield. So there's not many runoff spots. Instead, there's tire barriers and, and walls. And so if you make a mistake, you can get away with it at Watkins Glen or at Sonoma because of the runoff areas or you just run through the grass. At Charlotte Roval, you're going to hit the wall. That'll bring out a caution. We saw a lot of incidents in opening practice, lots and lots and lots of incidents. Lots of cars take damage. I think you'll see many more cautions in this race than we saw in either Watkins Glen or Sonoma. But I don't know. You know, Maybe these drivers are just pushing the limits in practice and they push the limits in testing and they'll shape it out during the race. Uh, but then you add in the playoff dynamic. I think it'll probably be a pretty heavy caution race, but I, I couldn't tell you for sure. Maybe it races more like one of these tracks or the other. I have no idea what to expect from this race. Okay. Uh, no idea what to expect from this race. I mean, here's just kind of bigger picture question. Is it kind of like, like what are your thoughts on this being the third race, like the race that eliminates people and it's a race that no one can anticipate how it will play out. I mean, as a fan, I'm excited. Uh, as I don't, so here's a funny, a little funny story about uh, elimination races. A couple years ago, um, Kevin Harvick, Talladega was an elimination race two years ago. And that just sounds bananas, making that an elimination race. Yeah. And Kevin Harvick actually used that to his advantage. His engine was blowing up on the final restart, uh, essentially. And he, he had lost his first gear and second gear and his engine was probably going to blow. Uh, and so they had one final restart and he intentionally, in my view, intentionally spun out Trevor Bain to bring out a caution and end the race because of the overtime rule at the time that they had, uh, which basically ended the race as long as it restarted. And, and so then they put in that overtime line and then they did away with the overtime line and all sorts of different rule changes. But, um, I don't think you'll see anything like that, but maybe you will. Maybe you'll see, uh, you know, if we come down to the last restart and uh, a guy is, you know, one spot ahead of another guy and he needs that spot to get into the playoffs, why not just move him aside on that final restart or, or push him into the wall or, or anything like that? Or, or or maybe it's just – maybe it's not even another playoff contender. Maybe it's just a guy who's out of the playoffs and you just need one spot. Uh very easy to spin somebody at a road course, whereas, you know, at a high speed oval, something like uh, Las Vegas or, uh, you know, or a Michigan or things like that, you wouldn't ever consider doing that because uh, the dangers are much, much more amplified at, at higher speed tracks. So uh, we kind of saw this three years ago, I think it was, with Ryan Newman at Phoenix. He punted, essentially punted Kyle Larson. He didn't wreck Kyle Larson, but he definitely gave him the, the bumper and moved Kyle Larson way out of the way to pass Kyle Larson for that last spot which transferred Ryan Newman to Homestead. And then Ryan Newman almost ended up uh, winning the whole thing. But uh, I, I, from a fan standpoint, I'm excited. It could also turn into a total disaster like Talladega did that one year with Kevin Harvick uh, kind of abusing the system a little bit uh, unfairly in a lot of fans' minds. And then there's the whole driver aspect. Do they think it's fair? Um, you know, Eric Almrola said, I mean, it doesn't matter if you make it the first or second race of a, a group of three. You still need to race the races and win the races and or get the points. Um, you just have a little bit more knowledge going into this last race of where you stand than the first race. So I do think having it as the last race and with that knowledge, 
sets up more crazy possibilities. You know, the Kevin Harvick wrecking a guy on the on the last restart or uh, uh, different kinds of things. And if you made it the first race where everybody's trying to kind of feel out where they are in the point standings and they know they have two other races to make it up. So uh, I think it also just adds to kind of the bananas of this weekend. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about this track. Uh, it is a Roval, so are you expecting it to race um, like Watkins Glen or Sonoma or uh, like the Charlotte Oval? Like, how are you expecting this to play out? Yeah. Um, it, so, like I said, we already don't know how it's going to play out. In terms of how will it race, if if I had if I had to totally just guess, um, which that's all I'm doing, it's an educated guess. I would guess it's more like Watkins Glen. You're going to have a lot of high-speed corners. Um, there are some slower sections, uh, so so it will have a little bit of maybe Sonoma feel in the in parts of the infield. But there are some high-speed. You know, like if you just look at the map of uh, of the Roval, there's a lot of high-speed corners, um, and you know, especially on the parts coming off of the Roval, there's some high-speed corners. Uh, they are pretty wide, which is nice, um, but it does narrow in certain sections as well. So. Um, like going into that, that turn off the front stretch, uh, which I guess is turns 15, 16, and 17 complex there, it starts out really wide and then it narrows on exit. You know, there, there's definitely going to be tight spots and there's going to be wider spots. There's going to be faster corners, going to be slower corners. So I can't say it really races more comparably to one or the other of Watkins Glen or Sonoma. As far as the Charlotte Oval, uh, I don't think teams will necessarily be setting themselves up for the Oval because at the end of both uh, sections of the oval portion that they'll be racing on, they are throwing in chicanes to kind of slow the corners down or slow the cars down. So they're not you know, going super far on the oval portion. So I think it's probably going to be better to set yourself up for the, the road course portion of the track than the oval portion of the track. Um, but I don't know. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, right. I don't know. We'll have to see what the drivers say, I guess. Right. Uh, okay, I should have probably done this earlier, but I'm doing it now. I want to remind everyone that you can get a special discount to a NASCAR pass uh, for $30, which is, I think, a, a screaming bargain through our NASCAR podcast homepage, rotaviz.com slash NASCAR podcast. With that pass, you get unlimited access to all of Nick's premium NASCAR content, uh, such as the model that uh, Nick is going to be doing. And, and Nick, that brings me to the question, uh, how do you even create a model for this race? Because... The, the models that you tend to create have uh, a lot of data, right? There's like the database that you mine um, and it's based on comparable tracks or, or the same track, um, you know, previous races. How do you go about creating a model for this? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the question this weekend. I, I think there's several approaches you could use. Um, you could model just the road courses, Watkins Glen and Sonoma and just, use it to predict this track. You could also throw in the Charlotte Oval. Uh, you could uh, just use all the races this year, or I could just use all the races in my database and just say, for a general unknown race, you know, what do we expect to happen? Now, I can't. you can't really say this general unknown race because that's just like a whole bunch of ovals, a few restricted play races, and a few road course races thrown in. But you're essentially just saying, in all the history of the NASCAR data that we have, what generally happens? What are the things that stand out? But... You know, there's many approaches we could use. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to create probably three models and just average them. Uh, a model with the road courses, a model with the road courses, plus maybe uh, this year's mile and a half ovals that are comparable to Charlotte. Uh, although I might 
uh, you know, I might double weight the road courses or something. And then I'll probably just do a model of like all the data since 2016 or whatever, uh, which is all the tracks essentially that aren't restrictor plate races. Uh, I don't know. I might, I might, I might use three different models and kind of blend them. Maybe I'll show all three models and then show the average model. I honestly don't know what I'm going to do here. I've thought about it. I've thought about it. I don't know what the best approach is. I think the most, the strongest models will probably be the ones where I use just the road courses. That would be my hunch, but I don't know for sure. Uh, and so I also think it makes sense to just use the, the model of all the data because that's just like all these NASCAR races, including these road courses, what generally stands out. Uh, so I think both of those are probably the most valid, but then I also think it's kind of valid to mix in the one where it's the road courses plus, <laughs> plus a little bit of Charlotte or something. So I think I'll probably yeah. just do three models and then present them all and then average them. And, uh, yeah, that way they'll all be behind the paywall in the article and you can, you can, uh, hit the download button and those will be the projections. You can, if you want to you know, change the projections in the, uh, the optimizer, you can download them and then input the projections manually by hand. That's why we you know, give the option to change the projections in the optimizer and everything like that. But yeah, I, <laughs> I think that's what I'm going to do, but I, you know, there isn't a whole lot of confidence in it. So, um, you just mentioned right there, um, that you, you kind of in your gut or like intuitively feel that the strongest model would be the one that's basically just straight road course. Um, if you had to kind of think about like, but then earlier you had mentioned in the second model, uh, that's sort of like road course, um, plus, uh, the Charlotte oval or like all the similar ovals. Um, and then you would sort of wait towards the, the road course. What do you think the appropriate weight is? I know there's like no like concrete way um, to, to know that, but just kind of shooting from the hip, do you think it's probably something like 80, 20, 70, 30? Um, so, uh, you know, actually what I, what I think it is probably, uh, I think you're right. It's probably in that 75% towards the road course range, but I'm not, you know, not positive, but we do if we just use Watkins Glen Sonoma and Charlotte, that gets us sixty seven thirty three, which yeah. is pretty close. Yeah. Um so you know, I could definitely do that as well. Um but uh and, and then I actually think that's kind of that kind of makes sense because if you do Watkins Glen Sonoma and Charlotte, that's a sixty seven thirty three, and then you have a hundred essentially a hundred road course zero oval and you're averaging those two together. Uh, so then you're really saying like you're taking the average of 67 and 100, and that's kind of the weight you're giving the road courses. So that's probably what I'll do is probably do a, a just a road course one, and then or just a road course with only Charlotte. Uh, and then I still think I want to do the one that's all the races, all the non-plate races since 2016, and just say here's what happens on average in a non-plate race. Um, and, and then uh, when you add that third one in, do you think you equal weight it with the other two, or do you think you uh, you, you downgrade it a little bit. Um, I think I'd probably downgrade it. Yeah. I think I'd probably downgrade it. Cause I, like I said that, like you said, um, a lot of that goes in the, in that model is mostly ovals and this is yeah. really not an oval. So, uh, it's tough, but I, I still think it's an important model because this is saying sure. without knowing anything else about a NASCAR race, just what are the stats that go into predicting NASCAR races on average, on average? So I still think it's a useful model. Yeah. And I do want to use since 2016, since they have these lower downforce, uh, you know, cars in terms of the, the Gen 6 cars. Yeah, this is I think this yeah. is so fascinating. It's um, super fascinating. And, and, and I think it's just it really lays out strategy just like in terms of, of this slate, like 
I think there's a lot of ways to approach this slate, and uh, I think there's going to be some some wrong ways and some good ways that we'll talk about. Yeah. So um, thinking about and and I guess here's here's another question, kind of on this about the models in general. Um, it correct me. I'm saying this as someone who knows almost nothing about NASCAR, even though I've been doing this show with you for what seems like a long time, like, you know, over two years, right? Are, is this, we're, we're entering our third year or we are now like at the, yeah, at the beginning of our third year doing the show. We're, together, we're, the, right? beginning our, we're at the beginning of the beginning of four of fourth years year. now. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Time flies. So, um, knowing almost nothing about NASCAR, it seems to me that the differences between drivers on road courses like um, maybe the skill set required to be good on a on a road course, um, that is greater than um, than the skill set required to be good at an oval. So like an oval just seems sort of like a basic track where um, I don't know. Like if you're a, a decent NASCAR driver, you can do well enough there. But on a road course, it requires maybe particular knowledge or a particular driving style that fewer people have. So it seems like you should wait, you know, very heavily towards the road courses be just because of like the, the different skill level that's required. I don't know if that is actually right, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, just because uh, they are different skill sets. I mean, that's why you see somebody like AJ Allmendinger always at least kind of near the front at some point of a road course race. It doesn't necessarily mean he wins all of them because he's only won one. But he's usually near the front at some point before he makes a major mistake or blows an engine or something. Uh, and once again in qualifying, A.J. Omdinger starting second. So I, I do think there is a, a good amount of road course that comes into this. But uh, I don't think you can ignore completely the oval aspect. Um, I just think it by and large is heavily weighted towards road courses. But you don't, you still don't see like all of the, the road course names up top. Like Martin Truex Jr., Kevin Harvick. They're usually right up at the top of the list with road courses, but look who we see where, where we see Truex and, and Harvick. They haven't been near the top of the charts uh, in qualifying, in practice. They weren't near the top of the charts. You know, Truex practiced 17th. Kevin Harvick practiced 27th behind Justin Marks. <laughs> he, you know, he was slower than Justin Marks in practice. Harvick made 15 laps. Justin Marks made 11 laps uh, in opening practice. Now, we don't know what trims necessarily they are when you're comparing them, but uh, you know, if, if Justin Marks put in a qualifying lap or anything like that. But, um, yeah, I mean, you, you see, like, you know, Bubba Wallace back in 34th. He's not a good road course racer. So, you know, I think there is probably more road course than oval that comes into it. But then you still see all the slow guys are slow. It's not like you got, like, uh, Timmy Hill popping up in 28 yeah. or, you know, in the 20s or, or anything like that. All your slow guys are still are still really slow. The only one that's kind of, you know, Maybe popping a little bit this week is, is Justin Marks, like I mentioned. But even then, he's starting 31st this time. Not a great qualifying lap. Um, Michael McDowell is in 18th. Usually, he's known as a pretty good road course racer. So you know, he qualified 18th, like I said. So And he practiced very well. So there definitely is, I think, more road course to it than oval. Yeah. Um, this is so fascinating as I continue to derail the show. Um, is this, I, I can't decide if this is a week I'm going to go heavy on props or just stay away from props. Cause I, I feel like I need to do one or the other. Like, I feel like this could be a week where the books really get it wrong. Um, but then I feel like it could also be a week where I'm horribly off just because I'm in this situation that is unprecedented. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, exactly. I think I think there's a very good chance the books are way off, yeah. um, which would be enticing. But once the lines come out, uh, you know, the head to head stuff, especially yeah. um, or, or maybe even some finishing position props. If I don't see anything that I really like, I'm probably just going to then fade it. So I, I you yeah. know, it's one of those like it's one of those uh, I wouldn't say bimodal distributions, but either I'm going right. to slam it heavy or I'm going to well, totally avoid it. No, I, I I definitely hear what you're saying because I feel like that's that's how it is. Normally, mm-hmm. like there are some weeks where it's maybe like there are just a couple that I like, yeah. uh, and then there are other weeks where um, <laughs> like there are just ten. You know, like there are, like the model is just pointing in one direction and the books are not going in that direction. Yeah. Um, and those have historically, at least like for me, those have been good weeks. Yep. And I, exactly. I imagine that just based on this being a new situation that the model will be pointing. i like, I would be surprised if your model ends up pointing in the same direction as the books. I, I agree. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's why I want to, you know, build three three models and, yeah. and then, you know, I think we can, Especially if we just average the ones that doesn't use all the data from 2016, but uh, just average the two road course slash road course Charlotte ones, that'll, like I said, that'll get us over 80% on uh, on road course weighting. I think that's going to be a good one to use against the books, but uh, that's just my best guess. I mean, like I said, looking at these practice times and who's popping in in practice that doesn't normally, uh, it does tend to be some of the road course drivers that are kind of moving up. So it mostly does tend to play like a road course. And uh yeah, I don't know. I mean, like I'm looking at some lines now. I see, you know, Denny Hamlin 30 to 1 to win. I might just bet that now just because <laughs> you also add in the fact that he has to gamble, right? And yeah. uh, so that increases his his winning upside. And he's won at road course races in the past. He's won at ovals in the past. That Charlotte is, has kind of been a good track for him in the past. Obviously, we can't say that plays in very heavily now. But, um, you know, I think there are situations we can take advantage of. So, yeah, we'll just have to see uh, when when lines come out, uh, especially with head-to-heads and maybe finishing position or, or group props, uh, if anything, is to take advantage of. I mean, seriously, on Sunday, I'm going to be thinking about this more than the NFL. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I think so, too. Uh, okay. Um, dominators. Uh, only 109 laps for this race, um, which normally would lead me to believe that you are more in a, a kind of situation of fading dominators, but... Uh, how are you approaching dominators versus place differential and finishing position? Yeah, I mean, 109 laps, that's, you know, not enough to to really go crazy on dominators. Maybe one dominator. Definitely there can be some zero dominator lineups. Um, and it also kind of depends on what you consider a dominator. You know, do you consider Martin Truex Jr. starting in 13th a potential dominator? Well, you know, you probably consider him somebody who has place differential and finishing position potential who could also potentially dominate, right? And so... I don't think you're really looking at dominators. Maybe, uh, maybe you look at at the beginning here with Kurt Busch and AJ Allmendinger starting one two. If it goes green for a good while in that first stage, one of the, the other of these guys could lead, you know, the whole first stage. But that's probably about it. What more likely will happen is because of all the incidents we've seen in practice, all the incidents we saw in testing, uh, the fact that um, you know there's much more damage at at this track than the other two road course races. I don't think you'll see what we saw at the other road course races where it's it's um, you know a lot everything kind of runs until the end of the stages and you get the kind of the stage strategy we've been talking about. I think you'll see a few more cautions, which will shake the field up more, which will shake the dominators up more. So I'm looking at this as really kind of a no dominator race, although there will be drivers that air quote dominate. 
I don't think you're looking at predicting the dominators. So I think you're kind of just playing uh, strategically. What drivers do I think have a better probability of achieving a certain outcome than I think they'll be owned? Uh, and and so in that sense, it it you know I'm almost ignoring dominators in some way. I do think there is some more potential for Kurt Busch and AJ Allmendinger if if like I said it it stays green. Don't really know Alex Bowman as a road course racer, and then Chase Elliott starts fourth. He you know won Watkins Glen. So uh, maybe you're looking at those three drivers that I mentioned, Kurt, Dinger, and Elliott, as potential dominators. But I think that, you know, maybe Clint Boyer in seventh, something like that. But other than that, I don't think you're really looking at dominators this weekend. You're kind of just looking to put together the best combination of finishing position and place differential with picking up some dominator points, if possible. And uh, then also, like I said, trying to weigh upside relative to ownership percentage. Okay. Thinking about uh, all of these things in conjunction, so we are at a track uh, where there is little confidence in finishing position from a modeling perspective. Uh, it could have a high incident rate. Dominators are less important um, because there are just fewer laps. So how are you putting all that together from a cash game perspective? Yeah, for cash games, it's it's a little easier. You just kind of uh play place differential for the most part are there good drivers starting in the back especially good road course drivers starting in the back and now we've got qualifying so um you know i'm i'm almost sure uh that denny hamlin will be a good play or, or somebody like a brad kazowski will be a good play because they start 25th and 27th um you know and and so you're just kind of playing the basic cash game strategy which drivers are most likely to to pick up points in place differential and finishing position and you're just kind of in this case, it's good to use the model in some way because you're you're optimizing. Uh, you're still optimizing an unknown, but at least you're optimizing. You know, I, I think the model will at least get us a portion of the way there, even if the R squared is 0.3 or 0.4, you know, four, five, whatever. It's still predicting 30, 40, 50 percent of the variance in finishing position, whatever it ends up may end up being. That's better than just completely just randomly picking drivers or, or, or things like that. So, I still think in cash games you can use the model. Uh, or models and just kind of try to pick from the best uh, drivers there based off of the models uh, in terms of finishing position and place differential relative to salary. So cash game strategy doesn't change a whole lot for me. I actually think, you know, the whole point of me putting out a model is so that uh, you can use it, especially for cash games. And, and even this weekend, R squared 0.33, you know, kind of like Bristol is better than an R squared of, of zero or point right. oh five or one point yeah. one like we get it at other tracks. The you know the restrictor plays, it's still something. It still uh, is more competent than uh, you know than than not knowing anything at all. This is a kind of random question, uh, and I'm not sure if it really even connects to like what we were just talking about in terms of bringing everything together from cash games, but um, 109 laps. I'm imagining that uh, that makes it much easier for refueling because you don't fall off of the lead lap. I'm assuming with it with laps being that long, someone can refuel without falling off of the lead lap. Um, is one is that assumption even correct? But then, like, how does that kind of does does that factor into anything for you? Yeah, so that's kind of what I was talking about earlier. You know, uh, let, let's look at Kurt Busch's pole speed. It was 67.8 seconds, so over a minute, minute 16.8, and that's pole speed. So race speed's gonna be even slower, closer to, you know, closer to 77, 78, even 80 second laps uh, by these leaders. So, um, you know, I, that definitely means you can get in and out of the pits and stay on the lead lap. Uh, and so, 
because of these 25 lap stages, you'll see drivers pit on lap 23, stay in the lead lap, then the caution will come out. And so you're going to see most of the drivers pitting before the end of the stage. Uh, and there will be maybe some drivers like I was mentioning, uh, a Martin Truex Jr. or a Kyle Busch, especially in stage one, trying to pick up that playoff point for winning the stage. So that's where I think it'll be, uh, you know, possibility of fading somebody like a Truex or a Kyle Busch because they get off of the main strategy or the optimal strategy and instead go contrarian, just trying to pick up a playoff point because that'll help them advance in the next rounds of the playoffs as well because these playoff points carry through the next rounds. And you only get them by either winning a stage or winning the race. You get one for winning a stage uh, and you get five for winning the race. So, uh, you know, I think they might sacrifice optimal strategy early in the race to try to pick up a playoff point and then still have time to get back into a strategy where they could win the race um, because it's so early. You know, 25 laps is out of 109 is not that far into the race. Uh, be a really good thing for them to pick up a playoff point on lap 25 and still have uh, what is it, 84 laps to, to kind of work their way back on an optimal strategy and maybe even pick up five for the win. So I think you'll see maybe one of these drivers sacrifice optimal strategy early for the the option of picking a playoff point. And uh, you're absolutely right. You, you can these all these other guys will be pitting and staying on the lead lap. Uh, you know, all these leaders will be pitting and staying on the lead lap. And that's going to be the optimal strategy, because then when the stage caution comes out, those leaders are going to have to pit at the end of the first stage if they haven't yet. And, uh, and and so um, they'll all go to the back of the field and then and then the people who pitted before the stage end will be back at the front when it goes green again. OK, um, talk about GPPs and how all of the factors we've mentioned up to this point um, influence what it is that your strategy is going to be. Yeah. So here's the thing about uh, DFS, right? We we all have, um, you know. Our, our podcasts, we listen to our sites, we subscribe to our, our drivers we prefer, uh, whether or, or you know, players we prefer in NFL. And that's how, that's how we form chalk and how we have low-owned plays, right? And, and so people tend to gravitate towards certain plays because they are better plays. Well, in this case, instead of trying to find the contrarian play or, or anything like that, I'm looking at the chalk, for GPPs. But what I'm looking at is what is the good chalk and what is the bad chalk? Uh, and what we want to do is we want to fade bad chalk. We we don't necessarily care about finding the contrarian play because I think ownership will be a lot more spread out than most races. Um, you know, obviously, especially with, with dominators not being as important. Uh, what we want to do is we want to fade bad chalk and we want to play you know, good chalk. We don't want to go necessarily crazy on good chalk, given it's a highly random race. But I definitely think you can have some chalk. Uh, it just you want to differentiate good chalk from bad chalk, and you want to get away from the bad chalk and uh, you know play play the good chalk and play other plays, whether they're middle owned plays. You know, your 15 to 25 percent range plays. Those are all going to be fine. Uh, you don't necessarily have to go dumpster diving for the six percent owned play. Uh, in this type of a case where we think ownership percentages will be pretty spread out, you're going to have a lot of unique lineups uh, in this in this larger GPP. And hey, if you split first place, you split first place. No big deal. Um, but but don't just go looking for off the wall plays uh, because they're off the wall. What you should be looking for this weekend is where is the bad chalk? OK, well, I thought you were going to say more there. Can you explain more like uh, differentiating? between the good chalk and the bad chalk. Yeah. So 
so the bad chalk is essentially like we you know we all we all look at practice we all look at um tout picks or or, or different things and there becomes this little bit of a hive mind and and so a lot of drivers will become better plays just because popular NASCAR DFS or you know, NFL, NFL DFS or NBA, NBA DFS um, touts or experts will will pick these guys and say these are better plays. Um, and so people will gravitate to these drivers. So how do you find the bad ones of these? Well, I think we need to look at the data. Uh, and, and I think a lot of people look at practice data. And so that practice data very heavily influences ownership. And where I think the bad chalk is going to come from is from maybe these drivers that start midfield uh, or a little further forward and have what looks to be like really good practice times. This race is going to be probably most likely unknown. There will probably, I think, be some cautions. Uh, There will definitely be, in my opinion, a lot of different strategies. Now, again, I don't know any of this will go on, but these are my hunches and we also just have no idea what's going to go on. So that should make you less confident. Uh, but people will look at practice times. They'll look at better drivers in, in positions maybe that are like maybe let's say uh, Kyle Busch just blows it off in both the post-qualifying practice sessions. He's starting 14th. Maybe he goes on the non-optimal strategy. Then all of a sudden he could he could maybe be bad chalk at that point because he's starting 14th. He's not starting like 28th or something. He's starting 14th, so not as much place differential. Still a very highly variable track. Could be a lot, or we think, and could be a lot of uh, cautions or, or, or different strategies that come into play that could leave Kyle Busch on the outside looking in. So he could become bad chalk. So where I think the bad chalk comes from is over-reliance on practice times uh, in the mid, you know, pack and forward. Uh, that's where I think bad chalk is going to come from. And uh, we don't want to be too much on these guys. They're, they're still going to be probably good plays because I think practice data will probably be a component in these models. But we just don't want to over rely on it. And and with the way groupthink works, um, that can happen. It can happen where everybody gravitates towards these couple of drivers. And so um, instead of saying, like, well, who's the pivot off this driver? Just kind of don't just don't worry about it. Just play other drivers. You know, there will be other drivers to play uh, and, and just really think about just fading the bad chalk. OK, so um, if practice is part of the. Um fading the chalk strategy. Can you talk about what you're looking, uh, what you're looking for in practice and uh, how much that is going to impact the strategic DFS roster construction decisions that you make? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, so, so when I say using practice to fade the bad chalk, I'm not saying ignore practice completely. Like I said, practice will definitely be a component in the model and it will help us predict the outcome of the race. What it also helps us predict is ownership percentage, and it has a I, my my hunch will be it'll have yes. a much heavier influence on ownership, ownership percentage right. than it will on predicting this race. Uh, so um, I still think you can use practice, but the whole idea is use practice to to figure out who the chalk will be. Also use practice to figure out other plays you might like that aren't necessarily going to be chalk. Uh, you can definitely use practice in that way, but but just realize if other people are using practice, then uh, it is a lot harder to to find your know, non-chalk plays that are really good in practice as well. Uh, so don't ignore practice, especially long run. Um, I, I think you can use both short run and long run in this case because I think there could be some shorter runs. I think there could be some longer runs. Um, I don't know for sure, so I wouldn't necessarily ignore shorter run practice data. Uh, I would love it 
if NBC gave, you know, five and 10 and 15 lap data, they don't, they only give average practice data, which is kind of annoying. Um, but, uh, you know, use whatever data you can get your hands on in terms of shorter or longer run speed to make your decisions. Um, that said, don't over rely on it. Don't over rely on it. Don't over rely on it. But practice can be useful. Um, I kind of just plan on mostly using it to identify the bad chalk. And then uh, from there, I think what I'll mostly be relying on is a combination of who's mostly good at road course races in the past slash maybe has a, a less good practice. And those might be drivers I want to get on a little bit more. So maybe that's kind of how I'm looking for my contrarian plays would be weighting this more towards a road course, figuring out which drivers are better road course racers that may have looked like they practice bad and getting on them a little bit more. Uh, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much the extent of how I'll be using practice this weekend. Okay. So it's not as if this is a restrictor plate race in which practice kind of means nothing. Um, practice means a little bit, but, um, it, we are anticipating that it might not mean all that much in terms of what happens on the track it will mean more in terms of ownership. So uh, are you basically looking at this kind of like a restrictor plate race or, I mean, is that going too far? Um, you know, it's, I think it's approaching a restrictor plate, but yeah, I think saying it's a restrictor plate race is definitely uh, a little bit too far. I mean, look at these guys in the back, your Ross Chastain, JJ Yaley, Jeffrey Earnhardt playing in Castle Stan Barrett, Timmy Hill. They're also in the back in opening practice. So uh, there's definitely correlation uh, with, with, just being in a terrible equipment and having a terrible race. Whereas at the restrictor plates, at least you can hang on to the tail end of the lead lap and a fade these huge or tail end of the pack, I should say, and, and fade these huge big ones and then gain like eight or 10 spots. Now you can still gain spots if there's wrecks here, no doubt. Uh, so these guys are in play, but it's not like they're going to be passing other drivers in the last lap or two because of a late restart and uh, being way better. Now there's still, in way inferior equipment. I mean, you're looking at Landon Castle at practice times. He was 7.7 seconds slower than the leader for his best lap. Uh, and, and you know, even driver like Ross Chastain in 35th or Cole Witten 34th in practice, four and a half seconds, five seconds slower than the top cars on their best lap. So there is very much a separation of speed here that we're seeing. Um, and uh, part of that probably has to do with the oval aspect. So don't exactly play it like a, you know, a restrictor plate race. Don't like go crazy bananas on these guys way back here in the deep thirties. Uh, like you can do at a, you know, the, I think we talked about GTO ownership percentages on the restrictor plate races way back there in like 35 through 40th, even if it's a bad driver, the GTO ownership percentage on, on a restrictor plate, something in the neighborhood of 15 to 25%, depending on different factors, Probably not going to be that here. It's probably going to be less than 15% would be like game theory optimal ownership on these drivers starting way back there. So, um, you know, you do want to play place differential. You do want to play finishing position. But there are, you know, there's a little more predictability in, in dominator points, fastest laps and laps led. There is a little more predictability. Um, certainly, especially compared to restrictor plate races where predicting leaders is very hard and especially predicting fastest laps is very hard. There will be a little bit more here. So um, it doesn't quite set up like a restrictor plate race. It definitely sets up more like the two road course races we saw earlier this year from a DFS perspective in terms of uh, attacking dominators versus place differential versus finishing position. Okay. Uh, random question here. If you had to set a line and over under for the number of cars in this race that have um, maybe not a DNF, but uh, 
an incident, a, a significant incident uh, that really hinders their ability, um, what would that line be? Man, that's putting me on the spot. <laughs> um, let's say how many how many cars are there? They're they're forty. They're forty. Okay. And yeah. um, you know, very often in road courses, you'll see a pretty decent incident rate. Yeah. And this one could have a little bit more. So I'm gonna say, let's say ten and a half. Nice. I'm gonna say nice. ten and a half. Uh, yeah. So that's my, that's my that's uninformed... a little over twenty five. Yeah, my uninformed uh, guess was going to be around twelve. I wanted That's probably to, too high. I wanted to say nine and a half at first, but when I talked myself through it, I was like, "Well, you know, probably over twenty percent, which is eight. Yeah. So then that that really means nine, and then I was going to say nine and a half, and I was like, "But you know, then I thought about the walls are are even closer than at the other road course races, so I bumped it up from nine to ten, and then I threw a half. <laughs> right, and it so. restrictor plate it might be like half of the field, right? Yeah. Yeah. At least, uh, you, you think the incident rate at restrictor plate races is around 40 something percent, I think, or, or something like that, or 38 yeah. or 40, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so both, pra uh, both practice sessions are tomorrow. Um, <laughs> your model is, uh, you know, something that is uncertain. Um, what is content going to look like this weekend and what is the content schedule? Yeah, so with both practices tomorrow, obviously uh, nothing coming out until after practice. I still, like I said, I think practice will matter, especially in terms of uh, fading bad chalk, but also just in terms of, uh, you know, we can use it. It certainly helps predict the race, and so that will have an impact on the model. I'll build the three models um, and run them, so that's going to take a little longer than normal. And then I, I have to figure out how the heck I'm going to approach this slate strategically and write that up for you guys. So I would expect... Um, you know, that, uh, I would expect that it would take me a little longer than normal after, uh, qualifying ends or sorry, final practice ends to, to get stuff out. So if you look at the schedule, final practice ends at just before two 30 Eastern time tomorrow. Um, so I would expect stuff on rotaviz.com around five o'clock. So maybe two and a half hours, maybe between that five and six o'clock Eastern time hour, uh, to get things up there. And then from there, I'll slowly update the apps after that as well. So I need to get the models run. The models will inform the, uh, the optimizer app. Then I'll get the SIM scores done as well. Uh, so it'll, it'll take a little bit, but um, I would expect the article between five and six Eastern and then the apps within an hour or so after that. Um, and then road of his live. I will probably record. Uh, I'll probably record late Saturday. It could be early Sunday, just kind of going to have to see how things play out and play it by ear. But if I do record it Sunday, it'll be early enough so that it'll be out and posted rotaviz.com slash live more than three hours before lock. Uh, so gives you enough time to watch the show and set your lineups, finish setting your lineups there. Okay. Uh, any final thoughts on how you are approaching GPPs, ways in which you think you might be able to get an edge? Yeah, actually, um, one last thing. And I didn't even think about <laughs> Glad I put this question because I knew I was going to forget. But uh, um, I think you want to look at driver talk and garage talk and, and things like that this weekend. And not just from the big names, but even the, you know, the smaller teams, they'll have opinions on how things will play out, what they've seen. Um, you know, I follow pretty much every NASCAR uh, team, driver, uh, crew chief that I can, a commentator, announcer, uh, media person, you know, really dive into the, the talk uh, and I would use most of that as facts, not as like fake news, but as facts, because 
generally speaking, when, when people are saying things, they're not, they're not sandbagging or, or whatever. They're actually expressing their opinions uh, because the, you know, that's what they believe and that they want to influence NASCAR one way or the other. Or they want to uh, inform fans one way or the other. Uh, and so, yeah, I really, really think you should be digging in as much in as you can to, to garage talk and track talk. That's my opinion. Like, you know, don't go crazy on it in terms of letting it influence your ownership percentages, but if it influences 5% or something like that, I think that's, that's, that's definitely the way you want to use it. Uh, I think that's some, maybe a little bit of hidden edge. Now, obviously it's public knowledge to everyone, but not everybody does that kind of research. So uh, that might be the last little bit of edge I'm looking for this weekend is scouring Twitter feeds and, uh, you know, media interviews and, uh, you know, TV interviews and things like that. Okay, that is going to do it for this NASCAR edition of On the Daily. For Nick Giffen on Twitter at Rotodoc, I'm Matt Friedman, Matt F. The Oracle. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to On the Daily, the Rotoviz Daily Fantasy Sports Podcast, powered by Rotoviz Radio. And special thanks to Randy E. Aguabo for the introduction. Please review the podcast on iTunes under the established Rotoviz Radio feed. Contact us via email on the daily DFS at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at on the daily DFS. <laughs>